It says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for, the, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness, steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to be able to see you one day face to face and hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, we're here because we know that you are the one that's worth pursuing. All of us are chasing after something, but Lord, you are the something that's worth everything. Lord, you are the, the pearl of great price that's worth giving up everything for. Lord, I think of the apostles who, when you were on the earth and you asked if they were going to go away too, after the crowds left, they said, where can we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. Lord, we know that to be true, and that's why we've gathered here. All hundred of us or so, Lord, we've gathered here tonight because we know that you're the living God. Speak to us now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. By the way, Pastor Lloyd just texted me and said, tell them I love them. And he said, that love the Lord. So if you don't love the Lord, he might not love you. But he says, I love you if you love the Lord. And he's praying for you. Oh, pray for Pastor Lloyd, by the way, because he has a sinus infection. It's been brutal, and Pastor Lloyd never gets sick. Um, so that was a side tangent. I just want to let you know that. Okay, so we're reading this passage of Scripture, and we've been looking at how Paul is speaking to the Colossians, a people group he's never met. And as he's speaking to this people group he's never met, he is encouraging them. He's writing all these uh, thoughts of exhortation and encouragement because this guy Epaphras, who was the pastor at that church, he had led these people to Jesus, had traveled all this way over to where uh, Paul was at the time in prison, saying, hey man, there's heresy creeping in the church, false doctrine, false teaching, and we need you, an apostle, a person who's sent by God, to write something about it. And so Paul does, and that's how you have this letter to the church at Colossae. Now that being the case... He goes into this new section after he talks about, hey, listen, just because you're saved, it doesn't mean that you're safe from snares because the enemy can sneak in when you're not looking and when you're unsuspecting and say, listen, I have things of the world that God will never give you, 
And what you're really looking for, I can give you if you just bow down and worship me. That's what he even said to Jesus. And so Paul is warning them against all the things that would creep in and sneak them away from the living God. And here he turns into this new section and he starts talking about this one thing. And it's in the center of this little passage. And he says that his goal is that we may, in verse 28, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. In other words, he says, I want to make sure that you make it to the end. I want to make sure that each and every one of you is complete in Christ, fully mature, fully grown. I think there's few things that's as much of an eyesore as a partially developed work. And one of the things I'm thinking about is if any of you have been on the turnpike and you're driving kind of by that, that stadium um, in, I forget the town, it's by Paramus, and you see that giant, uncompleted mall called Xanadu. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Xanadu? It's the ugliest building, I think, on the face of the earth. In, in fact, Chris Christie said he's just like, I think it's the ugliest mall building shopping center in New Jersey. And I would agree with him. It's like multicolored. It's like green and orange and yellow. It's just not coordinated at all. The whole point of it was in 2003... Uh, they wanted to build one of the largest malls in all of the United States. It was going to be this major attraction, indoor ski center, indoor bowling alley, and just all kinds of attractions, indoor rides, roller coasters, all this crazy stuff, except they ran out of money. And so then at two, 2007, 2009, both companies that tried to like fund them went bankrupt. So it just kind of sat there, this unfinished work on the side of the highway, and then they, they fell into this problem of, okay, we're so close to this uh, giant stadium. If we're that close to the Meadowlands, then what are we going to do if, like, people start parking here for free and, and just walk over to the stadium? We, well, we can't do that. So now they're charged. They're planning to redo the center, but they're going to charge for parking at the shopping mall. So who's going to go to the shopping mall if they have to pay for parking? It's just a complete disaster. And it costs millions and millions of taxpayer dollars. And it's just sitting on the side of the highway, unfinished. I've always wondered if people just kind of break in and just kind of go skiing, just like while it's not open. But it's an unfinished work, and it's a disappointment. And I think all of us can relate to times in our life where we started a project and we didn't finish it. And whenever you see it, you're just like, oh, yeah, I never did finish that. Like a work of art. Some of you are working on a painting, maybe you're an artist or maybe a musician. You start working on a song, and whenever you go back to it, you just hit a plateau, and you weren't able to finish it. And every time you go back to it, like, people are like, dude, that looks awesome. Man, that sounds great. When are you going to finish it? You're like, ah, oh, I don't know, when I get around to it. Unfinished work. It becomes an eyesore. It becomes a pain if you're not able to complete it because you're always thinking, what comes next? Well... Along with unfinished works like the eyesore that is Xanadu, they're actually going to call it the American Dream Mall now. That's the new title. It's like they're just hoping that someone will come just because it's called the American Dream Mall. Like foreigners will come in like, I want the American Dream. There's a mall called the American Dream. You can go there right now. Along with shopping centers, unfinished art, unfinished homework. Some of you are like, that's me. What about undeveloped Christians, people who had started the race but had not chosen to finish it, people who had not fully developed, fully reached maturity in Jesus. So what does that look like? Well, 
maybe a person who says, I raised my hand once at youth group or once at church. I did the altar call and I did, you know, I, I saved my spot in heaven because all the pastor said is, if you just pray this prayer, you're going to heaven. Tonight you can know. And then after that, I was like, great, awesome. Now I don't have to do anything else and I'm just going to live my life and that's it. Well, is that all that Jesus wants for you is so that you don't go to hell? That's it? And the rest of this life is just like, yep, just make sure that you, you save your spot, you reserve your ticket, make sure you're going to heaven, and the rest of your time on earth is whatever you want to do. It's meaningless. I don't think so. And this is what Paul is saying, is my goal is that I would present each and every person perfect, complete in Christ. He didn't want to just go around and, and do altar calls, and he didn't want to just go around and, and talk about Jesus and have people just save their spot. He said, I want to make sure that you don't stop, that you don't quit, that you don't stop halfway. I mean, how many of us would eat food that's halfway cooked? I guess unless it's meat, that's probably a bad analogy. Some of you probably eat stuff that's rare. But ignore that analogy because that was on the spot. That's why it probably wasn't inspired. Andrew Murray has this thought where he talks about children. Children often are cute when they, you know, can't speak. They just crawl around. They drool. And you look at them and you're just like, oh, the little baby. But if that baby was actually a 28-year-old man and was drooling and crawling, couldn't feed himself, you would probably say there's something wrong with that. It's no longer cute. Now it's just really awkward. Like what if I just thought, you know what, the way to really engage the teenage culture is to act like a baby. Because I've seen them teenagers. They all sign up for children's ministry. They're all really excited. And so I need to be like a baby. So I come in with a bib and I'm just like drooling around and, and like you would think I'm insane. None of you would come back ever again. He's lost his mind. And then Pastor Lloyd calls me in his office like, so you acted like a baby? Like literally, you acted like a baby. He's like, yes, I'm trying to relate to this culture. It doesn't work that way. In the same way, as Christians, we shouldn't be content to stay as babies in our relationship with the Lord. But we should look to grow in him, to grow in and mature in him as well. Why don't you turn to Mark chapter 4 real quick. I want to read you a very famous parable where Jesus himself kind of describes what it might look like to be in to be a partially developed work, a partially developed Christian. He says in Mark chapter 4, verse 3, it's in the New Testament. Go to the middle of the Bible and start going right. Mark chapter 4, verse 3 says, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some thirtyfold and some sixty, some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked about the parable. And he said to them, to you has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, 
so that seeing they may not see and perceive and hearing they may not hear or may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, do you, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, the word of God that is, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, so they endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter, entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. So he describes different kinds of soil. And I think this might be a good indicator of people that initially might show some fruit. Or initially might seem like they're believers, but what you find out is they fall away, or they, they're prodigals, they walk away for a time, and they, and they wind up coming back. But either way, this is what happens. I think this is a good indicator of someone who is partially developed but underdeveloped as a believer in Jesus. So you have an instance where Satan comes in and he just snatches the word away. So maybe you hear something, you, you're going on YouTube and then you hear some false doctrine or something or someone tries to demolish Christianity and you hear an atheist say something and immediately they're like, oh, I've never heard that before. I don't, think, I don't think Alan knows about that objection to the existence of God or something. And so immediately you hear that and you're like, well, I'm, I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. And then you just, whatever you hear, you just take it and you run with it. So maybe you're a person who's just very receptive and then you came here for a period of time and then you're like, yeah, I think this is right. The music is good. And yeah, when I was sitting there, I just, I felt like this was right. And then you go out and you hear something else. You're like, well, maybe that's right. There's like Mormons and Jehovah's Witness and maybe they're all right. And you're just confused. Or maybe you're a person, and it talks about this too, you're that person who at first you're really excited, but then when tribulations came, when suffering came into your life, because you did not have deep roots, you immediately blamed it on God. And that's not to say that like, it's not understandable to be hurting when you're suffering. What it is to say is that when you're hurting, if you have a good relationship with someone, you trust them despite the fact whether or not you know the answers. So if it's the case that you have a situation where you're hurting and maybe someone in your family or maybe a friend has hurt you, you, because of your love for that person, because you have a loving relationship, you're willing to say, you know what, I don't understand all the answers right now, but maybe it makes sense. Maybe the fact that my parents are grounding me makes sense in some universe, right? Maybe they're disciplining me for some reason, or maybe they're not allowing me to have this thing at this point in time, or they're not allowing me to do this thing at this certain time because they love me. Maybe, right? So, but because you don't have that relationship with God, you can't do that with God. And then every trial and tribulation that comes your way, you blame it on him. God must hate me. God must not exist. Every time that you have a bit of suffering. And that, those are people that don't have deep roots. And then you have, lastly and finally, the cares of this world choke out the word, the word that's sown in your heart. And it's not because you didn't like God. It's not because you thought God wasn't real. It's just the things of this world were too attractive. And then you watch those music videos, you listen to those songs, and you watch those movies, and, 
and you look at that and you're like, that's what I want. You see that relationship in that TV show and you're just like, if only I had, or you're on Instagram, right? And you see that perfect couple and you're like, I want that. I don't care what it takes, I want that. And when you have that decision in your heart, you're slowly moving away from the Lord. Because what you're saying now is, I don't care what it takes, I'm willing to give up everything else to chase after that one thing. And so a person who hasn't fully developed in the Lord doesn't understand it's all a smokescreen. All that stuff is fake. All the cares of this world are just out there to deceive you. And those of you that have done the Bible challenge know this. In the beginning, Satan's job was to put, pin you against God, pin Adam and Eve, and say, did God say that you can't eat of every tree in the garden? Make you question God. Does God really have my best interests in mind? And then he lied to them saying, you know, you could be like God, not knowing they were already made in his likeness, made in his image. That's Satan's job is to deceive you and to trick you and make you chase after other things. But a person who hasn't fully developed in the relationship with the Lord doesn't know that and doesn't know how to defend against it. So Paul is knowing this, not wanting them to be deceived by heresy, false doctrine. He's saying that my job is, is to make sure that each person is presented perfect in Christ Jesus. And that's what he says in that verse 29. Let's, let's read it. In, um, verse 29 says, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So he uses two words. First one is labor, and the second one is striving. That labor it has this idea in the Greek of weariness or heat, exhaustion. And then he says, I'm striving, and it has the idea of fighting, competition. He's trying his hardest. It reminds me of when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me, with me. But here's the question I have. So what he's saying is, I'm striving, I'm fighting, I'm competing like an athlete. I want to make sure that I win. But the thing that I want to win is people. I want to make sure that you make it to the end, that you, people I've never met before. He wants to make sure that you're presented perfect in Christ, mature, full. But the question to me is, why was Paul so passionate about a people he had never met? Why was he so passionate about their maturity if he's never even met these people? What was it inside of Paul? Because if you think about it, right, like, don't we need some encouragement? Don't we need some motivation to even fulfill our own New Year's resolutions? And they're like selfish resolutions too, right? Like this year, I want to win climbing competitions. I want to renew album. I want, and I have ideas in my head, but like, I need motivation to do that. So how is Paul motivated so much so that he says, this is the one reason why I'm still alive. He said, what, to live as Christ, to die as gain. He said, I would love to be with, with Christ right now, but it's more needful that I'm with you. That's the way that he viewed life. The reason why he was on the earth is simply because his work was not finished yet. And the work was to be faithful with what God had given him to reach more people. So that's my question. Okay, why was he so passionate about people he never met? How is that even possible? And this is the answer I had. I think it's right in the text. It says, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Here's your answer. It's God who put that passion there. God put the passion inside of his heart. So let me ask you a question. 
Has your heart ever broken for other people? Have you ever spoken to people and you're just like, man, these people are so lost. Maybe you don't know people like that. Just honestly, maybe, maybe you don't have friends in the world that just don't believe in God. And you don't know what it's like for a person to talk to you like I have, who have been out of the church for years and have been drinking, have been caught up in drugs. And they come back to the church for the first time and they're like, you know, all that time I spent in the world, I never enjoyed it. And you don't know what that's like because you don't have friends like that. But there are times that I've had where I'm speaking to those people and it's just like your heart breaks because you know that person is miserable and you have the answer. And this is what God does. When he changes your heart, suddenly you have desires that weren't there before and the desires for other people. It's love. Love for people you've never met before. You meet a person once and you're like, you know, walking around in the mall and you're just saying like, you know what, maybe I'll evangelize to someone. And then like you just share the gospel with somebody and they share a story with you and you leave and as you're like driving home, you just can't stop thinking about it. It's just gnawing at you like, man, how can we reach that person? How can I share the love of God with that one person that's hurting that I know doesn't know him? That's how it happens. You ask for God to place that desire inside of your heart. I remember, um, actually, just earlier this morning, I was out to lunch with uh, another pastor, and he was talking about how he wants to be as effective as possible, you know, just be able to run this race with endurance. And he said, I just think about so many times, like, seeing Jesus face to face for the first time. Like, what will I do? He's like, I'm working at a church. There are people that are at this church that are supporting me. And it's like, I will see Jesus face to face one day. I will have to answer, was I faithful with what God had given me? Was I a good steward? Will he say, well done, good and faithful servant? And for me, that's what I'm always thinking. It's like, man, I want to make sure that I'm maximizing the time that I have on this earth. Remember the question I asked you a couple weeks ago? What is the one thing that you want accomplished at the end of your life? The one thing that you, if you were on your deathbed and you're, if you were thinking like, Man, I didn't get to do this one thing. What is that one thing? Maybe you don't know still. You've been thinking about it like, oh, I still don't know. I'll tell you what mine is because I didn't tell you two weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was. I have two things. Number one, I want to know when I die that I push the gospel a little bit further into orbit. I didn't have to do like this monumental thing, but I want to know that I made an impact and when I go to heaven, I left the earth a little bit better. I left people a little bit better. And I set things into motion so that the, the gospel is able to progress and reach more people than it would have not if I had not been alive. That's the first thing. The second thing is I want to know that I took every step of faith that God called me to step into. That every time he said, I want you to do this, I want you to follow me, I left everything behind and I said, I'm going. I don't want to look back in my life and say, like, God told me if you just do this, if you're just faithful, just read my word, spend time with me in the morning, just listen to my voice. Hey, listen, if you just commit to praying for this person, just watch what happens. I don't want to go to, to heaven wondering what could have happened if I had just been faithful with the little things that he had given me. I want to go to heaven thinking, like, man, if only I didn't waste that time in college, if only I hadn't wasted that time at the workplace, I could have done more. You know, I'm not going to be here forever. 
just a matter of fact, I might die. I might get called elsewhere. And when I leave this church, I don't want to have to think like, if only I had done more with impact. I want to be faithful. And this is what Paul is saying is, by the grace of God, I'm saved. This is who I am. He has made me this way. And this is why, because it's God who chose me, I'm going to labor, I'm going to strive harder than the rest of the apostles because I know that it's the, God, uh, the grace of God that's working in me to do those things, to willing to do for his good pleasure. So that's his passion, that's his heart. And then he gives five marks of Christian maturity. So this is not an exhaustive list, but it's just kind of what's there in the text. So I'll give you five marks of Christian maturity. The first one we see in verse 24. And a a Christian who has matured in his walk with Christ rejoices in suffering. Rejoices in suffering. So let's read verse 24. It says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. So that, by the way, is probably one of the most confusing verses in the entire Bible. Just look at it. Paul is rejoicing in his sufferings while he's in prison. Remember the context. He's in prison far away, like a thousand miles away from these people. And he's suffering for them somehow. So like he's in prison and somehow his suffering is applied for people he's never met before. And secondly, he says, I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Like if that doesn't confuse you, I don't know what does. It's confused a lot of commentators. How is Christ lacking in anything? And why does Paul feel the need to fill up what Christ is lacking? Right, so you have two aspects. The first one is how does the suffering apply for other people? Number two, in what way is there a lack that Paul is filling? Well, I think this is simple, but I'll uh, try to explain it as best as I can and not complicate it. So first of all, how did Paul's suffering apply for the church? Well, I'll give you an illustration. Well, I mean, you might do this now. But when you're married, and let's say you have babies right away, it's just you and your spouse, you'll find, I think, I don't know, I'm not married yet. I think what you'll find is there are certain chores that if you don't do it, somebody's going to do it, right? It's, It's like you or the other person. I remember one of the pastors telling me, he's like, when I first got married, the weirdest thing is like, you know, you see trash on the floor and you walk over it and you just neglect it prior to being, you know, married. But then you're married in your house. You're like, if I don't pick that up, then no one else will unless it's my wife. So either I pick it up or she picks it up. That's it. Those are the only two options. Doing dishes. It's either me or it's her. That's the only two options. So when Paul is saying this, this is what he has in mind. He says the reason why his sufferings apply for these people is because he's saying someone has to fulfill the call that God has on this planet. Someone has to preach in Rome. If it wasn't Paul in prison, someone else had to be in prison. And what Paul was saying is, listen, I will gladly take those sufferings upon myself so you don't have to. Isn't that cool? What Paul is saying is you, like there are in this world, there are people groups that will kill you for your faith in Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, I'll go there so you don't have to. I'll do it. If no one else wants to do it, I'll do it. Why? Because I was one who formerly persecuted the church. I was a person who was a cause of persecution and suffering. But now I get, to, I get the privilege of suffering for Jesus. I get to be one of those people that I have harmed. 
He's like, I will do that gladly so that you don't have to. So he's fulfilling that duty and going out all out for Christ, knowing that there's a reward for every suffering and persecution. So then secondly, what is this other aspect about filling up in his flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? So in what way did Paul fill up what was lacking? Well, the way that I'll explain this is this. Remember, similar to the last thought, that Jesus had promised that there were, in this world you will have tribulations, right? There was going to be difficulties. Elsewhere, you see it in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. It says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. It says that the disciples uh, strengthened the souls of the other disciples, exhorting them to, con to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So what he's saying here is, it's been promised to us, as Christians, we're going to suffer. But if you're a Christian and you're not suffering, can it really be said you're a part of the team? So let me give you another example. Let's say that you are part of a basketball team. Being a part of a basketball team, you should expect some aspects of suffering. Physical exercise, you're doing drills, you're sweating, you're doing suicides, you're doing all different kinds of activities. If you're a part of the basketball team. Now, if you're a part of the basketball team and you don't really sweat, you don't really suffer, there's not been any difficulty for you whatsoever, can it really be said that you're part of the team? So what he's saying here is, not that Christ is lacking, but there is a gap missing. As Christians, we should be suffering. There's, there's gotta be somebody suffering, and what he's doing is he's saying that I am filling that role, I'm making sure that I'm part of the team, I'm doing what God has called me to do. The second aspect of that is that if it requires persecution and suffering to get the gospel out so that Jesus can come back sooner, what he's doing is he's ushering in the messianic era. He's, he's progressing the, the timeline so that Jesus can return sooner to this earth because he's pushing the gospel forward. So really, really interesting thought that Paul is filling the obligations of those that are suffering and he's also part of the team. So the question we gotta ask is, are we suffering for the name of Jesus? Many of us suffer, but are we suffering for his name's sake? It's not just suffering, but suffering with purpose. And so when you suffer, I think one of the most difficult things about it is you want to ask why. Why am I hurting? Right now on staff, we have so many people in the hospital. My, my dad had pneumonia. I had pneumonia. My dad went to the hospital. I went to the hospital. My mom was sick, and she hasn't been sick in eight years we have elders in the hospital. Like, everybody's sick. Pastor Lloyd got sick. We, all different kinds of tribulations, difficulties, crazy stuff is happening all this week. And we're like, what in the world is happening? And then one of the pastors is like, you know what? Maybe it's because everybody's actually reading their Bible. Maybe it's because we purpose in our heart. Like, maybe. Maybe it's not. But maybe it's not a coincidence that we all chose to go through the entire Bible in a year and everyone just starts getting persecuted. And when you understand that, that there's a purpose behind it, you can rejoice because you know that there's a reward. Those that don't have Jesus, when you suffer, there's always the big question and you never have any guarantee that it's working out together for good. When people say all things happen for a reason, there's no guarantee of that. But for those that believe in God, that promises that he's working all things together for good, you have that guarantee. And it gives us the confidence that though we suffer now, there will be a day that we don't have to suffer any longer. 
And even though we go through pain in this life, the reward we receive in heaven is far greater than any suffering we receive on this earth. The second mark of a mature believer, and we're going to go quickly through this, is a believer who's mature makes disciples. Makes disciples. And we see that in verse 25 through 29. Some of the verses we already read, but read verse 25 with me. He says, For the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. So in other words, he's given me a task that I have to fulfill as a servant, which was given to me for you to fulfill, once again, it's filling, filling that gap, fulfilling the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. I had a, I've had a number of students text me this, so I'm not calling anyone out, but everyone always hears me say, I want to change the world all the time. And then like in the past like week or two, I've had like a couple of people just send me messages saying like, it's like counteracting like what I want to say about changing the world. Like somebody, I'm not calling you out. It's not bad. I'm just saying. It's funny. Like there's one theologian that had a YouTube video and says, anytime you hear someone say, I want to fix the world, run away. And she's like, send it to me. And I'm just like, uh, I don't know. I don't want to, I want to change the world. I want to fix it. Like, I don't think I'd fix it. But the whole point of like me saying that is not because I believe that I'm the answer. Like another one was like, people talk about changing the world when we need to change ourselves first. And like, yes, yes, I get that. Okay. So here's the point. This is what I'm saying. I'm saying the point is we believe that Jesus has the power to change people. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. If we believe that Jesus changes people, the whole point is not so that you're changed. It's so that you would in turn change people. Jesus never just changes you just so that you're a changed person and you just sit there for the rest of eternity, but he changes you so you can be an agent of change. That's why our vision statement here is let Jesus impact you, have an encounter with God, and then by his power, you can impact the world. It's not about you trying harder, you changing the world, you trying to do whatever you can. It's about letting Jesus just say, here I am, send me, use me, and he does. And you see that same change happen in other people. I believe Jesus can change me. And I also believe that Jesus can change other people. And that's why I'm saying, Lord, I know what you've done with me, a filthy sinner, that you saved me by your grace. And I want to see you do it again. That's what's so fun about the Christian life is that you, you're like, you're walking up to someone who's hurting, suffering. And what you're saying changes their life, like literally changes their life. They, change, they turn away from sinful behaviors they start attending church. They start doing good in the world. And it's like, I had a part to play in that. You're talking to people on the phone and you're just giving wisdom from the Bible. It's not a big deal. It's just kind of like, um, I think if you trust in that, it's not going to save you. And they're like, what? I've never heard it said that way. I'm just like, I don't know. It's, the, it's in the Bible. If you read it, it, it probably would change your life. Really? Yeah. You should try reading the Bible. Okay. Like, that's what we're supposed to do as Christians. This is why Jesus said to his disciples, hello, he said this, Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things which I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, amen. 
That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm with you. Go change people. I change you so that you can change people. Think about this. What if the disciples let it stop there? What if the 12 disciples said, eh, you know, Jesus really invested in me, really feel privileged, and that's it. And they never went and fulfilled the Great Commission. We would not have a church. None of us would be in heaven. How many people could you reach that God wants you to reach that only you can reach that won't be reached if you don't obey? Interesting question. And then you're talking about free will and divine sovereignty, which is another topic for another time. Interesting question, though. Are there people that God wants me to reach? And is there a role that only I can fill, that God has made me to fill? And that's why we have to make disciples and not let that change be wasted on ourselves without influencing other people to experience the same change. Third mark of a mature believer is unified in love. Not much I have to say on that because it's throughout the entire Bible, but it says in verse 2 of chapter 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, in other words, strengthened. I'm hoping, I'm praying these people are strengthened church, encouraged, being knit together in love. That's what he's saying. Unification. So you want to know if a person's mature in their faith? How do they forgive each other? Is there unity? And if you see people, they're always fighting, always talking bad about other people, always gossiping. Chances are they're not mature as a believer because a mature believer is going to recognize, you know what? I'm a pretty bad person. Like that person's bad, but I'm a pretty bad person too. And when you recognize that your sin is really, really bad, it gives you a little bit more grace with all the people that hurt you. So can we be a church that's willing, like on this retreat that we're going on next week? I'm just saying, like maybe your Emmaus walk partner doesn't have to be your friend for 45 minutes, but maybe you can actually kind of go away from that girl that you like or that guy that you like that you're interested in and like you know what I'm going to invest in other people because I think that's what God wants me to do I don't think if you're dating somebody that they're going to break up with you just because you didn't spend time with them for one weekend I don't think it's going to happen I also don't think that if you chose to say Lord I'm going to give you this weekend I'm not going to talk to that I mean, that girl is pretty fine, but I'm not going to talk to her this weekend. I don't think your life will be just completely, for the rest of your, your days, I don't think it's going to be ruined. I don't think it's going to be sabotaged. Like, oh, no, if only I talked to them on that retreat, then, like, we would be married. But now we're not because I didn't talk to them. It's not going to happen. Ask me how I know. Back in the day, I'm not going to tell you stories, but I tried. I wasted my time. It doesn't work. I know what you do. I did it, too. You're like... The session's starting, you're sitting next to that person that you like, and you're just hoping, I hope that Alan's like, let's pray. Put your arms around the next person, the person next to you. You're like, hoping that happens. And that's why I don't do it, because I know, I know what it's like to be you. Okay, knit together in love, but talking about like brotherly love, not talking about like spousal love. Okay, number four, fourth mark, enriched understanding. So he says in chapter two, verse two through three, we already read that, but it says, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all their treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All he's really saying here is, I want you to understand Jesus. Not just, and here's the game changer if you do your devotions in the morning, you're doing the Bible challenge. Game changer for me is pray while you read. As you're reading, and you're reading about a lot, like you, you probably did today and yesterday 
and you're reading about like Sodom and Gomorrah and all those crazy things, you're like, Lord, that same sin is inside of my heart. Lord, are there sins in my heart right now that I need to get rid of? I mean, even in that passage, you're, you're reading about like, isn't it crazy? I think I read it this morning. It might've been yesterday. I think it was this morning where Lot just completely like hides the two angels inside and just like talks to the other people. It's just like, uh, he like doesn't want them. To, like, what's outside? He's like, don't come outside. You need to stay inside. Don't. He's like, we want to sleep in the, in the town square. He's like, don't do that. And I think about like, are there sins in my life that I want to hide from the Lord that I don't want him to see, other people to see? So you're like praying that, right? You're, you're not just reading it and just like, that happened. Oh, oh, that's weird. A cave? Daughters? Oh, that's weird. You're not just reading it, but you're praying through it, right? Game changer. Do that. So you're understanding Jesus, enriched understanding, because only in Jesus is all the wisdom that leads you to truth. So last one is a mature believer withstands false teaching. So verse 4 through 5, now I say this lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. What he's saying here is there are people that are immature believers where they hear every little thing. I hinted to it before. Every little thing that they hear, they're just like, oh, maybe that is true. And maybe, maybe Jesus isn't God. And maybe he's just the spirit brother of Lucifer. And, maybe, and you're just kind of like listening and taking heed to these things. But a person who knows the word of God will not be deceived by those things. So you've heard the illustration before, but how can you tell if a dollar bill is a counterfeit? You don't have to know all the fine details of what the counterfeit is. What makes it a counterfeit? You don't have to know like that number one is backwards and like it's not the right color, whatever. All you have to do is see the real thing. And when you see the real thing, there's nothing that compares to it. It's the same thing with knowing the truth. When you know Jesus, you'll open up the Book of Mormon and you're just like, it doesn't feel the same. It's because the spirit will lead you into all truth. And you're going to read a textbook, but you're not going to have the spirit. But here's the thing. Everyone look up here. If you don't know how to read with the Spirit, then it's all going to seem the same to you. The Bible has become your textbook because you go to Christian school. The Bible has become a textbook because it's become a legalistic thing. And that's why Jesus said, hey, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But these are they that speak of me. And so if, you're, if your reading of the Bible doesn't allow you to meet with Jesus, you are, not, you are not fulfilling what God wants you to do. You're not having enriched understanding. So in conclusion, just ending all this, what is it that matures believers? How can we have a mature understanding of him? How can we grow? What is our spiritual food? What is the thing? And you probably already know it, right? It's the word of God. That's it. And my job, the job of the leaders here, is to just get you in the word of God, to allow you to engage in the life of the spirit. And allowing that to do its work inside of your heart it will teach you everything you need to know. Because listen, if it's up to me to teach you everything you know, need to know for, for life and godliness, we're in trouble because I'm like not perfect. But if God is the perfect tutor and he can teach you, that's all you need. Just get in the Bible. And that's why we're so passionate saying this year, make it the year that you're going to read the Bible every single day. Just get in the word. Be talking about it with other people. Because when you let the word do its perfect work, it does this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you want to be complete, 
if you don't want to be halfway finished, if you don't want to be underdeveloped, you need to be in the Word of God. That's it. And by doing that, suddenly, all those marks of a mature believer happen. Because when you start suffering, you don't immediately assume that God is evil. You know God is good because you know his word and you know his heart. Next time that you are talking to somebody else, it's not about you trying to position yourself so that they like you more. It's like, how can I make more disciples? How can I reach these people for Jesus? You're not influenced by your unsafe friends, but you're influencing them. Next time that you are in an argument, you're like, you know what? The word of God tells me I need to be knit together in love. I, I should be forgiving this person as Christ has forgiven me. Your understanding is enriched and you know false doctrine because you know the real thing. So that's my encouragement to you is even before the retreat, like maybe we could say tonight, I want to be, I want to know what it's like to know Jesus. I want to grow my walk with him. I want to grow my understanding so that I can see people change. So I can have that same heart as Paul. Like, imagine if you left here tonight and there, there is that one person on your heart. You're like, I want to see what it's like for that person to know God, for their life to be changed. Let's pray.